in the middle of Yeshua telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees where his authority came from. And he did it in kind of a roundabout way. And I'm going to do a quick review because I know a lot of you weren't here last week. So let me just fill you in here a little bit. But you should get the CDs if you want the full impact of what Yeshua is doing here. The whole discourse is happening because Yeshua rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Just as Zechariah chapter 9 said the king would come. And it wasn't lost on those who were there that day. They call him the son of David or the king as he rides into Jerusalem. And so right away, he comes under the watch of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then he proceeds to go to the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. Uh, and, those, uh, and he chases out those who are selling doves. So now he's messing with the temple and the priest's income. And so the scrutiny becomes a little more intense. Then he begins to heal those with disease. And the next day he returns, he again heals those with disease and he begins to teach. And undoubtedly, with the miraculous healings going on, he's attracting larger crowds, probably pulling crowds away from some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Very upsetting. And it's while he's teaching this large crowd of people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and ask, by what authority are you doing these things, they ask. Who gave you this authority? And they ask him because they know that Yeshua has no authority given him by the Pharisees. No rabbi or sage has laid hands on him, given him any authority to teach. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin, so he has no authority in the temple to do the things that he did, stop the sale of doves and the exchanging of money. He's not a priest, so he has no authority in the temple in that regard. He has no authority given to him by Rome. And so really, there's only one answer to their question, and that is that his authority comes from God. That he is the Messiah of God, and that gives him the authority to do what he's doing. If, however, he answers his authority is from God, it will give them grounds to call him a blasphemer or a subversive and arrest him. And so this is a trap. And Yeshua, knowing that it's a trap, he says this in verse 24, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's immersion, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And so what Yeshua does is he turns the tables on the Pharisees and answers their question, but he answers it with the focus on Yochanan instead of himself. If they believed Yochanan, they wouldn't have to ask the question, would they? Because Yochanan declared clearly the answer to this question. But the fact is they didn't believe Yochanan. And so he avoids giving them a reason to accuse him, and yet he'll answer their question, but he'll answer it by putting the focus on Yochanan, and then in a series of parables, he's going to further answer their question, and in the process, show their treachery. Remember the lesson of the first parable. The owner of the vineyard, that it was, the, it was the vine, one of the vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard the parable teaches that these people, because they didn't believe Yochanan was the messenger of God, he was the messenger of God, but those who did, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of them. Remember, John's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the second parable, also a parable of a vineyard and a landowner, he gets more personal. He tells them not only have they rejected the words of Yochanan and stoned all of those sent to him, and will continue to send stone those sent to them. And not only that, they'll also kill the son of the owner. 
The owner, of course, is God and the son, Yeshua. And for that, God will destroy them and give his vineyard to others. Well, this week, as we look at the third parable given to these men, Yeshua continues to focus on Yochanan, but in the third parable, he does something that he hasn't done in the first two. He adds eternal consequences to their and our actions as well. So Yeshua, in his rebuke of those who have come to him, again uses Yochanan to take the focus off himself. And Yeshua, again, in the last parable, prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only that, in the next parable, he gets a little more personable and he speaks of the end of days, an eternal judgment for those who don't repent. And remember, as we start to read again, Yochanan came preaching, repent for the kingdom is near. And so Yeshua says this, Yeshua spoke to them again in parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. And so Yeshua uses the theme of the wedding banquet. And he, he, he clearly, as we're going to see, is speaking of the messianic banquet. And yet for the sake of the parable, he terms it a wedding banquet. And we all know that the Messianic banquet is going to be a wedding banquet because Yeshua is going to come and be united with his bride. But the curious thing is that it's not termed that way in any rabbinic literature. It's always re referred to as the Messianic banquet and never a wedding banquet. In the parable, we have him say the kingdom of heaven is like, which is giving us in this parable, an eschatological time frame, or we could say an end of days time frame. And in the parable, we have the king, who's the father in heaven. We have the son or the groom, who is Yeshua. We have the king's servants, John and the prophets and the disciples. We have those who refuse to come. They're the leaders of the Jewish people in the parable. And uh, in life, they're the ones who are questioning him, the ones who turned away from Yochanan's message of repent for the kingdom of here is here and then finally we have those who are called from the streets and the crossroads and we'll speak of them later and so again let me just emphasize that he's using Yochanan as a foil he's the messenger and by keeping the attention on Yochanan he takes it off himself and yet at the same time answers their question about his authority because you know Yochanan declared boldly that Yeshua was the Messiah the Lamb of God sent by God and so the leaders of the people have refused Yochanan's message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. So they refuse, and now in the parable, the king shows his mercy by sending his servants again. It says in verse 4, Then he sent some more of his servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My ox and my fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants and mistreated them and killed them. So this part of the parable is much the same as the parable we saw last week of the landowner. He, he sends his servants, who are the prophets, the messengers of God, a second time. They don't listen to them, and they kill them. And again, he's referring to the prophets, and particularly, I think, Yochanan. And I believe in this parable he's going to be referring to the disciples as well. And the reason I say that, because like no other prophet, 
no other messenger, the disciples lay out the wonders of the kingdom and its ruler. Like no other, God in his mercy, even though they refused to come, sent others for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I also say the disciples, because if you notice what else he says in the parable, the second time he sends his messengers, and they tell him about the great, how great the dinner will be. In other words, he's saying, please come. I have this great banquet for my son. I prepared this great feast. It's for you. It's the wedding of my son. And that's why I say it refers to the disciples because like no other group, they told of the wonders of Yeshua's kingdom. They displayed the wonders of Yeshua's kingdom and it's king for all Israel to see. But let me say this, even without the disciples, they should have known They should have known about the banquet. If we look at the parables of the wedding and compare it to weddings of the time, we can understand why they should have known. This type of affair would have been something that was long in the making. Weddings took a year or more of planning, but everyone knew there was going to be a wedding. Everyone knew there was going to be a great feast because the betrothal had taken place. They maybe wouldn't have known the exact time, but they would have been given a whole lot of time to prepare so that they could come on short notice. And that's a perfect example of who we have standing in front of Yeshua. They were the teachers of the law. They had read the wonders of the kingdom that God was going to bring. These are the teachers of Israel. They should have known. They should have been ready for the kingdom or what Yeshua has termed the wedding. But they don't care. They didn't listen to the message of Yochanan because they were too busy with their own business. They refused to see the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 because they were too busy with this world, too involved with this world and in the rulers of this age. Not only were they the ones invited, not only were they ones who refused to believe Yochanan, that would have been bad enough, but they were the ones who knew the glory of the kingdom that was coming from Scripture. These are the teachers of the Word of God. They were well studied in Isaiah chapter 60 through 66, which speaks of the glory of the kingdom that's coming. They were the teachers of the law. They knew Zechariah chapter 9. Remember, that's part of the reason they're standing here. They were the ones, if anyone should have been on that road that day saying Hosanna to the son of David, it should have been them welcoming the king. They knew Daniel. They knew Zechariah. These men were the ones who were supposed to teach Israel of the wonders of the kingdom that we read about in Zechariah chapter 8 and chapter 14. These men knew they were invited and the only reason they're not going to the wedding is they refuse. They're too busy with their own businesses. They made a conscious choice not to go. Their minds, their lives, and their actions are on this life and not on the kingdom of heaven. They were consumed with their own laws and not God's mission. And so they do to Yochanan the same thing that their fathers did to the other servants that God sent. They just pay no attention. But not just Yochanan... And not just Yeshua, but you'll notice that this parable never mentions Yeshua's death, the son's death. And so we could assume that he's speaking in this parable and prophesying of the death of the disciples as well. Think about it. The disciples die at the hands of the leaders as well. The disciple Yaakov or James is thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. 
Others were killed at the hands of those who refused to believe the message. And the next, the parable speaks of the destruction of the temple because of these things. It says this, The rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged and he sent his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. And so again, Yeshua speaks of the destruction of the temple. He speaks of the burning of the temple in Jerusalem, which is just about only 40 years away. All this because of what they have done to the messengers that God sent. And notice that it says he's going to send his army. And yet we all know it was the army of Rome who destroyed and burned the city, so how could that be his army? Well, all throughout Scripture, armies that attack Jerusalem and are allowed by God to destroy the city are called God's army. God can use an army whether it's his or not and still be his army. But here's the problem. Let me say this. If you're in Jewish ministry, or if you're Jewish, this is a hard thing to look at, isn't it? The fact that God destroyed his temple and the holy city of Jerusalem because we missed the hour of our visitation, killed his son and those sent to us. You know, if we go out and we say things like that to other Jewish people, it sounds very much like the wretches who called themselves Christians in the Middle Ages and killed Jewish people because they were Christ killers. It sounds very much like the same rhetoric used by Hitler. It sounds anti-Semitic. And so when we witness, we have to be careful in our witness because we don't want to sound like those wretches, right? And yet, the fact is, as painful as it is, they did miss the hour of their visitation. Their leaders did seize and kill many of those sent to them. It's not anti-Semitic, but it's truth. It's a matter of historical fact. Not only is it a historical fact, but it's something that they have to see. It's something that they have to see because the same book that gave us the prophecy of the king coming on a donkey, if we move just a few chapters forward, says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and its inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And on that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. You see, there comes a day when they have to see and they will mourn. They will see what we all must see. That Yeshua gave his life as a ransom for us. The real question isn't whether it happened. That's historical fact. But the thing we need to ask ourselves, is it our responsibility to speak of it? Or is it the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict? And that's a foregone conclusion. It was the Holy Spirit that convicted us. It will be the Holy Spirit that convicts them. Our responsibility is to reach out in love. We, while realizing that, yes, they missed the hour of their visitation, we must also realize that the whole reason Messiah came was to give his life. He didn't have to do it. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it. And I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing that could have stopped what happened that day because in this was the greatest act of love known to man and it was ordained by God that his son would be a ransom for many. Yeshua tells us this in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.
I want you to think about this for a minute. Yeshua gave his life as a ransom for many. No one took it from him. And I want you to focus on that because there's another mistake we make in our witness. You know, and that's calling Yeshua a sin offering. Trying to compare him with the sin offering in the Bible. You see, while Yeshua's giving of his life accomplished the same thing as the sin offering was supposed to, and that's why the book of Hebrews compares him to a sin offering, and why Shaul in Romans compares him to a sin offering. So in some respect, we could say that it's true that he accomplished what a sin offering did in principle, but could not do in reality, as Hebrews says, the blood of goats and bulls never took away sin. There is another way that it's not true to call him a sin offering. And Before you stone me, Let me say, if Yeshua was a sin offering as stated in the Bible, we have a lot of trouble. Because a sin offering had to die, as God said, with a slice to the throat and not suffer. And yet, Yeshua suffered. A sin offering had to die in the temple north of the altar or on Yom Kippur between the porch and the altar. Yeshua died on a hill outside the temple. You see, if you read the instructions for a sin offering, none of that describes the way Yeshua died. Yeshua wasn't offered as a sin offering. He was murdered in the most brutal fashion. Not so with a sin offering. Everything had to be done in accordance with the mercy of God and the word of God. So as a sin offering, according to the Bible, biblical requirements, Yeshua was disqualified. Not to even mention that God doesn't even accept human sacrifice. So how could that be? The only time you can find anything close to human sacrifice in the Bible is in the story of Isaac, and God didn't allow it. He stopped it. It was just a test of Abraham's great faith. And so how did Yeshua pay the price for our sins? Because Yeshua did redeem you, and he did pay the price for our sins. You are forgiven. Well, the key is in the verse above. He gave himself as a ransom for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. The wages of sin are death, and he died a life for a life. Yeshua never calls himself a sin offering in Scripture, even though in giving his life he accomplished what the sin offering was supposed to do but could not. The fact is he calls himself not a sin offering, but he calls himself a ransom. You see, he gave his life as an act of vicarious atonement. He gave his life for ours, something that a sin offering could not do. You see, if we look at his life as a ransom, that's something that we can find in the Bible. That's something we can find in Scripture. And we can find it here, right here, Yeshua says, I gave my life as a ransom. And vicarious atonement is something that you can find not only in the Bible, but you can find it in Jewish tradition as well. You can find it in the prayer book for Rosh Hashanah. Listen to what it says. May the binding with which our father Abraham bound his son Isaac upon the altar be seen before you and the manner with which he overcame his love in order to do your will with a perfect heart. Remember today the binding of Isaac with mercy on his descendants. See, that's vicarious atonement. We can see the idea of various atonement in the Talmud. Moses said to God, will not the time come when Israel will have neither tabernacle nor temple? What will happen with them then? 
And the divine reply was, I will take one of their righteous men and retain him as a pledge on their behalf in order that I may pardon all their sins. Thus too it says, he has slain all that was pleasant to the eye. Was Yeshua an offering for our sin? Well, yes, he was. Was it a good way to describe what he did for us? Because he accomplished what a sin offering was supposed to do but could not. But a better way is to say that he was a ransom for us. He came. He paid the price for our redemption from the one who owned us. From the one who had the list of our offenses. He vicariously gave his life in payment. He gave his life as a ransom for our debt. And not just ours, but all who profess him and accept that ransom. But I'm getting a little off track. But I was just trying to make us better witnesses to Jewish people. But the point I want to make is, as it pertains to Matthew here, is that yes, while the rejection of Messiah is a historical fact, the realization of that may not be ours to share. What is ours to share is that the whole world is a prisoner to sin and Yeshua paid the ransom for that debt. Not just for ours, but the whole of mankind who will accept it and conform their lives to his. No one took his life. He gave it as a ransom. And the problem lies in their rejection of the ransom, of the gift that God gave, their failure to see the gift that God gave. Let's read on in chapter 22 and verse 7. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And so he says something that the church and the church fathers have misunderstood down through the centuries and really it's to their own destruction. And I believe it's also made way for much anti-Semitism that we see in the history of the church. The king tells his servants, go out and invite those on the street corners, anyone they could find to the banquet. And so what is the church... Uh, thought of this they've taken this to mean that God is finished with the Jewish people and now the blessing of God is out to the non-Jew but you, I want you to think about something that's not the context here it doesn't even fit the context here nowhere in this discourse has the subject been Jew or Gentile the topic has been those who do the will of the father those who don't those who come to the wedding those who don't those who repented at Yochanan's message and those who did not and the result of the church's misunderstanding is misunderstanding the whole concept of what Yeshua did. They saw the Jewish people as Christ killers and while it's true the Jewish people missed the hour of their visitation and in doing so the leaders of the people aided the rulers of the present evil age in putting Yeshua to death, that's true. But the even greater truth is that if they hadn't done that it still would have happened. Because as we just covered, he gave his life as a ransom. And if you miss that, if you don't accept that ransom price, but you refuse the gift of God and you say that the Jewish people are Christ killers, you miss the gospel. You miss the good news. And that's what much of the church has done down through the centuries. Not the entire church, mind you. 
But then this parable isn't about everybody. Notice what it says. Go out and invite everyone you find. But then we read a little bit farther. It says this. It says, so the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so with the rejection of the invited guests, the king sends the servants out to the street corners to gather anyone. And here's the trouble for the church this part that says gather good and bad in other words if this applies to the Gentiles he's gathering good and bad in other words the result of the failure of those called is that good and bad are invited to the wedding to what can we liken this part of this because this is a prophetic parable of Yeshua well first we have to understand that it's not about the good news going out to the Gentiles to the exclusion of the Jewish people. We just talked about that. This is about those who will choose to do the will of the Father. Those who will choose to come to the wedding feast. The problem is that the church, those who profess Jesus, is filled with those who say they're followers of Yeshua, but in fact are not. It's filled with good and bad. Because that's what they were to gather, good and bad. We're told over and over in the parables of Yeshua and it's reminiscent of all some of the other parables. The wheat and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish in the net, the sheep and the goats. In the church today, everyone claims to be a follower of Jesus. But we have those in the ranks who are not. Listen to what Shaul says, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me read it for you. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the fact is there's good and bad everywhere in the body of Messiah, what we call the body of Messiah, or the church. Everywhere you look, there are those who say, I believe in Jesus, and yet we find in the church sexual immorality. We find in the church adulterers. We find in the church homosexuals. All among those who say, I believe in Jesus. We find the greedy, and oh my goodness, do we ever find slanderers among the bad, among the church, among who are supposed to be disciples. There's even biblical advance, uh, examples of good and bad. The disciples were the good. Judas was the bad. In Acts, there's those who sold their property and gave what they had to those in need. They were the good. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira. They claimed to be what they were not. They were the bad. There'll always be good and bad among us, and the bad will always cause problems for the people of God. But not so when we get to the banquet, as we're going to read next. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited but few are chosen. There's a time when the wheat and the tares will be separated. There's a time when the good fish and the bad fish will be separated, when the sheep and the goats will be separated. And who will do it? the king and thank God for that because it's more than we're capable of 
There's a lot going on here in these last few verses, and we're going to probably be continuing on into next week with these. But let's look today at what's the meaning of the wedding clothes? Because, you know, there's a lot resting on these garments. Some in the church over the centuries have said, well, it's baptism. Others have said, well, it's the Holy Spirit. And some other things. But, you know, I have always been a firm believer that the Bible interprets the Bible. And so let's look and see what we can find about clothes. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says, For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And so here we're told that wedding attire is righteous acts of the saints. What are the righteous acts of the saints? Well, again, the Bible interprets the Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Be careful. Do not let your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your, le your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, according to the Bible, righteous acts are the clothing. And what are they? They're the good you do for the glory of God. Charity in his name for the glory. Yeshua tells us something similar. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, he says, anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua tells us that entrance will require that our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. So we could just compare our actions with the very ones who missed the hour of their visitation and refused to go to the feast. If we compare this with the Pharisees of the first century, it really would fit well because the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the first century claimed to know God. They claimed to be doing His will. Yeshua called them what? Whitewashed tombs. Let me say, we're all called to the wedding feast. But admission to the feast is wedding garments. We're all called to the wedding of the feast, but the cost of admission is not just believing in Jesus. Even the demons believe in Jesus. Psalm chapter 14 and Psalm 53 says, Only a fool in his heart says there is no God. We're not called to believe in Jesus in the sense that we believe. We're called to be disciples of Yeshua to imitate his every word and deed. The first and really only example that we are to look at as having a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is Yeshua, our rabbi. And we are to be his disciples. And so let's be his disciples. Amen?